Hello and welcome to the G2 podcast. Okay, let's uh, let's get started. My name's Luke. I'm part of the team that lead here at G2 and have been um, since we started. Uh, one of the things I've always really enjoyed about G2 is how we uh, do things a little bit differently and don't look like a traditional church. That probably, in a way, that is a, a church I feel like I can belong to. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people have felt similarly over the years. It's great to hear Jacob's story about... Um, how he, he thought crawling around on the floor was a good normal to join in on uh, in the church. And so, yeah, as, and that's part of who we are, I think, as G2. We want to be creative uh, and have, have uh, fresh looks, um, new looks uh, at, at Scripture, which is timeless, and Jesus, uh, who is and was and always will be. So it's like these eternal truths, but then also how do, how do we look at that with a fresh lens? Um, this is, I hope, a fresh lens or a helpful lens through which we can look at Jesus. Um, and I don't think this is the only way to see Jesus, but I think uh, there's, there's different ways you can view the person of Jesus. And I think he's a little bit like a jester, like a court jester to a king. He, I kind of think he sort of plays the role of a jester to the human kingdom. Um, and he provokes us and does all sorts of things. So I'm going to present this idea to you uh, as we look at this passage uh, that we'll have today, which is of his triumphant entry going to Jerusalem uh, in Matthew 21. So we're going to read that together in a bit. Um, And he rides on a donkey, uh, which is a bit of an unusual method of transport, uh, especially weird that it's a baby donkey. Um, so this whole, this whole, yeah, as Ben mentioned, I looked at this idea of jesters in my sabbatical, which is about four years ago. I had three months to spend time reading about idiots, tricksters, fools, jesters, um, this kind of archetype. Um, and it, it, partly I did that because it was a bit of a, a self-apologetic. Um, I've always felt that's been part of my story, to be some kind of a fool, whether it's a class clown or... Uh, whether it's just a, the, the person who makes a group of mates laugh or something, it's kind of always been a bit a part of who I am, a bit of foolishness. Um, and in fact, part of my own faith is I grew up in a Christian household, but I gave up on my faith. And as a teenager, uh, basically, I just wanted to be an idiot. That was, that was, those were my, that was my language. I, that's how I would describe what I wanted to do with my time and my life. I just wanted to be an idiot and doss about, basically. And uh, that's what I did. Um, and then I was at this Christian festival that my parents had taken me to called Spring Harvest. Uh, and I saw this guy uh, called Andy Hawthorne, who was dancing in a band called the Worldwide Message Tribe. And I'd gone to see this because I thought, I thought it sounds cringy. I thought, I thought it sounds awful, if I'm really honest. I don't really like that sort of music. I was into kind of rock music and indie music. And so I didn't like the idea of a dance band that are dancing around. But there was a girl I fancied that uh, she invited me. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll go. So <laughs> I went along and I saw this guy dancing around on stage, and he was a proper plonker, like funny. He made me laugh. I thought, this guy's a proper idiot. But then he shared the gospel at the end, and I thought, ah. So, like, he's an idiot, but also he's God's idiot. But I'm just an idiot. That's right. That's, I want to be God's idiot. If I can be it, but also I suppose what was really happening is I was going, I actually want to be a, a fool, an idiot, but if I can do it for God, that would be better. But what I was looking at is 
all the Christians in my life looked pretty dull. They looked boring. Um, and it looked like you had to give up having fun in order to follow Jesus. But then it didn't make sense because I'm reading the Bible and I'm like, this guy's bonkers. He's cr- he does all sorts of stuff which just bends your head. So surely he's fun to follow. But then the Christians I'm seeing just look like they've not read about this same guy that I'm reading about in the Bible. That didn't make sense. So I gave up on going to church, I suppose. But I always knew God was worth following. And so partly in my sabbatical, I was, I was rediscovering that holy foolishness that I think is what Jesus comes to bring. Um, he comes to subvert the power in this world, um, which I think is what's happening in this entrance into Jerusalem on the back of a baby donkey. Jesus comes to interrupt and disrupt and undermine power uh, that is held by people who can't be trusted. And he provokes us and he irritates and agitates a lot of the people who... <laughs> Uh, lord it over other people. Um, God, in a way, um, wants to imagine, I mean, just imagine the planning meeting. God, God's going, let's become a human. Uh, the Trinity are chatting in heaven going, let's become a human uh, so that they can have a human to know what we're like because they, they still can't quite get it. So let's go as a, as a human form. So the the idea is, let's be born into a questionable marital situation and we'll 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 be born into an animal feeder and we'll be born into a nation that's oppressed and uh, that's actually overruled by another force, another worldly empire in the form of the Roman Empire. Um, And we'll be born into a town where... Uh, it's called Nazareth, and, and they say about this place, nothing good will ever come from this place. Let's pick there. Um, like this crazy kind of story. But the reason God does it is because if he chose to be born as the prince to a you know, pharaoh or whatever, you know, people would not say, well, that's why he has this power and authority. Instead, he chooses to do the opposite, and he turns everything on its head. He, he flips it upside down so that in order to follow Jesus, you have to choose it. It's gonna. It's got to be a choice because it's it's not something that we're forced to do, because he he is um, he, he, there's nothing forceful about about him and the posi- he doesn't choose positions uh, to sort of manipulate us to follow him. He gives us the full choice. Um, so there's tons of fools in the Bible, and I kind of just I just want to enthuse you about. If you, if you follow the Christian faith, if you've read your Bibles, it's littered with idiots. And I use that phrase um, knowingly that it's a provocative phrase. It does, not everyone likes that word. But it's full of people who provoke, and lots of the prophets are like this. They do stuff which, we, because we're religious, and because we've read about them before, we just think it's normal. Their behavior is not normal. Let me tell you about some of them. Nathan, uh, he is a, he, this, is, this is a great trick that he plays on David. He goes to King David, who's just slept with Bathsheba, and he's had, had the uh, husband Uriah killed in battle. Nathan goes to him and he tells him a story because he tricks him into it. And he tells him this story about somebody who had loads of sheep and then somebody who only had one sheep. And then this guy uh, eventually had this one killed. And then and it was like, even though he had thousands of sheep. And he says, what should we do? And David goes, this is outrageous. We should kill this guy. This is awful behavior. Um, who is this man? And then Nathan says these words where he, just imagine him standing and saying, you are that man. And it's just like... Pfft. Because he plays this trick on him. 
So that's a, a foolish trickster thing to do. Isaiah, who you all think is an amazing prophet, and you all read Isaiah and you all think, oh yeah, that's a wonderful prophet. He goes naked for three years to illustrate Israel's unfaithfulness, uh, unfaithful reliance on Egypt. Because that's a normal thing to do, going naked for three years. So you all think, well, his words are trustworthy. Um, what about Micaiah? Uh, he warns, uh, he, he, Micaiah is great, but you've got these two kings in Israel and um, Judah, and they're, they're meeting together. There's Ahab and Jehoshaphat, and they're like uh, having this sort of kingly get together, um, and they're, they're going to go into battle, um, and they're deciding whether to do it or not. And so uh, Jehoshaphat says to Ahab, have you, got, have you got any prophets who can tell us if we're going to win or not? Because he, he thinks that they're a bit like fortune tellers. So he's like, yes. I have 400 of them. I'll bring them in. So he brings in the 400 prophets and uh, they say, and they say, oh, we're going to win. And all 400 say, absolutely, you're going to win because they're just yes men, they're not prophets. So they just say, yes, absolutely, you will be totally victorious. And he knows, Jehoshaphat knows these guys are just talking a load of bull. So he says, you must have someone who tells the truth. Have you not got any prophets that are actually going to tell the truth? And so, he, so um, Ahab says, well, there is this one guy called Micaiah, but he speaks nothing but death about me. Imagine, being, imagine that being your reputation for how you speak about the king. So he says, we could get him in, but, you know, he'll only speak death. Um, so he says, well, I might as well get him in anyway. So in he comes and he says, what's going to happen? And he uses sarcasm, which is, again, a, like a jestery thing to do. So he prophesies falsely first off. So he says, are we going to be victorious? And he says, oh, yes, you will be victorious. And clearly they know it's not what he really thinks. So, that you know, you can't get tone of voice in the Bible, can you? But he must have been sarcastic because they say, what do you really think? So he must have been, oh, yes, maybe mimicking the 400 or something. Anyway, so uh, they say, what do you really think? So he says, well, I see that you will go out onto the mountains. I see you like scattered like sheep without a shepherd. I basically prophesied doom and death. He's like, I told you it would prophesy death about me. So they lock him up into a tower. Then they go into battle and exactly what he prophesied would happen happens because uh, he's a prophet. Um, <laughs> another great uh, jester is Jeremiah. Jeremiah has a fantastic reputation among our prophets and we all think he's really worth trusting. He also hid his underwear in a rock for a long time and then went back to them and put them on as an indication to Israel about what, how God viewed them. Um, he also fastened a cow's yoke to his shoulders until another prophet broke it off. But these are the things we don't focus on, but they do. But my point is they did things that disturbed the narrative of the time. But we just read the bits of scripture that we like nowadays. So we read the sweet little bits that Jeremiah wrote. Uh, about having plans to prosper us, not to hide our underwear. Anyway, Ezekiel, um, how about him? Here's his normal behaviour. He lay on his side for 390 days facing Jerusalem. You know when you lie on your side for 390 days? He did that. So then he rolled over and carried on. He also cut all of his hair off with a sword and burnt a, thir a third of it he burnt, a third of it he scattered around the city, and a third of it he threw into the wind. You know, all this sort of normal behavior that the prophets do. But the point is, the Bible is full of these kind of 
pointing the way to Jesus. This is what the prophets do. Because God comes to, he comes with lightness. He comes to have fun in a way. He comes to bring fullness of life, not heaviness and burdens. He comes to take our burdens off us. And this is what Jesus does. And this little passage that we're going to read now with the donkey going into Jerusalem. And, and the, I, I like that Dan has laid out all of the, um, no, was it you two? You, lay, you laid out all the um, things just like happens as Jesus goes in. They lay their coats and the palm trees as he goes into Jerusalem. So, we're going to read that passage together um, and we'll sort of spend a few minutes doing it as a gospel contemplation. So I'll read it twice. Um, read it once so you can familiarise with self of the story. And then I want you to pick a character in the story and then I'll read it again. And we'll just really get you to imagine what it would be like to be there in that moment. Because sometimes when we read scripture, we can just read it for the facts that are involved in the scripture. But we don't remember to bring in our imagination, which helps us to realize this actually happened. This was a real thing, an event that occurred. This isn't just a, a fairy tale. So it's Matthew 21, 1 to 11. If you have it, you can find it. It's okay if you haven't got it with you. You can just listen and imagine it. God is big on imagination. He had to be to create the heavens and the earth. That's a pretty good imagination. If you read Revelation, he can imagine some crazy stuff. Um, okay, so if you've got it, then we'll, we'll start. So I'll read it out the first time, and then you're going to pick someone to be, and we'll read it again and just really imagine what it would have been like. So the triumphal entry. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and once, at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him, the Lord needs them. These are not the droids you are looking for. No, that's not what he says. I'm just joking. But basically, there's this moment where he says, the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Um, they took... This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you, and your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. <coughs> the crowds that went ahead of him uh, and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna on the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Okay, I love, by the way, that first 11 always makes me laugh. I love the idea of a crowd answering something. <laughs> how, how does that work? Everyone said in unison. Um, okay, so we'll read it again. But this time you're going to pick someone so, or pick a character. So you could be a cult. 
You could be, you could be the donkey or the baby donkey. Um, what's this going to look like from their perspective? You could be Jesus. You could be one of the disciples who goes ahead or one of the disciples who isn't picked to go ahead. You could be somebody who's cutting down a palm branch or laying down a cloak for them to walk over or an onlooker. There's all sorts of characters. But So just in your mind, just pick who you're going to be now and just stick with it, right? So then see the rest of the story from that perspective. Um, if you're anything like me, you can, get, you can pick someone and then get tempted to change character. But just try and stick with the character that you choose. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. So let's just pause there. They're on a long journey. They're approaching Jerusalem. They're not quite there. Imagine what it would have been like. What, the, what was the temperature like? What time of day is this happening? Are you hungry? Maybe thirsty. Maybe it's dusty. Jesus said to two disciples, go to the village ahead. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. What was it like to hear those instructions? How did Jesus say that? Did he pull the two aside so the other, the other disciples couldn't hear or were the other disciples in earshot? If you were one of the disciples, does your heart start to race? Questions running through your mind. Has he lost the plot? Is this really going to happen? And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Did you remember those scriptures from Zechariah? So the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them and Jesus sat on them. So let's just imagine what it's like when they went into the village and then they do actually see that there is a donkey and a baby donkey. And then they take them. In this instant, in this uh, version in Matthew, we don't have the conversation happening. But in Luke's version in chapter 19 of Luke, we do see that. So uh, maybe they do have that conversation with the owner of the donkey. Is he or she a bit weird? Does he or she just go with it? Is it exciting? Is your heart racing again? 
What are the donkeys like? Do they come easily? A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What's this scene like in your imagination? It's on some kind of a road. It's quite a long road. How many people are there? People trying to get a good look in. People who don't really know what's happening are then trying to get a look in, saying, who is this? What's going on? Do you get drawn in? Do you lay your coat down? When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This kind of euphoric moment. How do you imagine that? Is it like um, the scenes after England do really well in a football match, like euphoric in that kind of way? Or is it more like a political rally? How do you imagine it? Maybe going to see a, a band that you really like. Is there much? Do you feel surprised? Do you think this is him? He's the Messiah. It's going to happen right now. He's going to. He's going to win. Basically, is he going to beat the Romans? What sort of things are you wondering? Okay, let's pause it there. Um, so that's a, just a way of engaging with Scripture that we do every now and again at G2. It's great to do a bit of imagination. So just chat to the person next to you about how that was for you um, and what did, what did you clock? So who were you in the imagination and what did you imagine? Was there anything that stuck out that you thought, oh, I've never thought of that before, I've never seen it from this angle before? Um, and um, yeah, so let's just do about three minutes chatting to the person next to you about how that was. Okay, I know it doesn't feel long. Um, time flies when you're chatting to people that you like. Um, okay, so I'm going to just open up a little bit more about why it's fascinating, this whole donkey thing, this whole jester thing. Why, why does he pick a donkey? Why, why does he use that? Well, a donkey is uh, kind of the symbol of foolishness. It's the sort of universal animal of stupidity, isn't it? Um, otherwise known as an ass. It's, it's like a doofus. It's not a, it's not a clever animal. It's a simple one. And Jesus wants to pick this method of weakness, of vulnerability, of humility, and foolishness, I think, as his method of transport to know that he comes in peace. So we know that, but there's much more about the donkey that fits in uh, to this picture of the jester. 
Um, it, and and uh, Shakespeare knows that, doesn't he? So Shakespeare picks uh, a donkey as the character to play bottom in Midsummer Night's Dream. It's a stupid kind of character. Um, but these characters, these jesters, also are often the ones who speak truth to power. Um, often Shakespeare uses the fool to speak truth to the king. Like in King Lear, the fool is the one is the only one who speaks the truth, and everyone else is lying. All the people in positions of power are lying, and the fool speaks the truth. So that he does that a lot, and partly that's because that's how Jesus operates. He comes in this kind of holy foolishness and speaks the truth to power, resisting the world's power, um, and uh, people can't get their head around that picture, particularly the world he came into. So he comes into this world of, um, uh, of, of Roman power, but sort of Greco-Roman empires who, with all of their gods, their deity that they worship, uh, who are um, immortal and infallible. Um, and in this world, they cannot imagine why Christians in the first century, in the early church, would worship some kind of deity who became human, like became mortal, and was killed by humans who he supposedly came to save. That is just embarrassing in a sort of Greco world view of deity. It's stupid. It doesn't make sense. So they refer to it as madness. Um, and they started to nickname the early Christians. In fact, before they were called Christians, which means little Christian or little Christs. But before they, that was also a mockery of the early church. They were calling them little Christ. But before that, they were also called donkey worshippers. Um, because this feature, the donkey features quite a bit in scripture, and it, you know, in terms of animals, it gets a look in. Um, but by the way, it doesn't get a look in in the nativity, but it will do, I'm sure, uh, next week. But um, there, Mary didn't go on the back of a donkey. That would be a terrible thing for a pregnant woman to do um, as, a, as a long journey. But anyway, uh, it's in the nativity, and that's very nice. Um, but it is in this bit, and Jesus does go on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem. Um, and so uh, they were called donkey worshippers because you'd have to be a donkey if you were a god that came to earth and was killed by the people you came to save. Um, in fact, the earliest depiction, the earliest artistic depiction of the crucifixion that we have uh, is called Alexaminos Graffito, which is graffiti about this boy called Alex from a private school in Jerusalem. And this is the earliest picture we have of the crucifixion so if you want to flick through oh there's donkey look there's uh there it is right so that admittedly the guy on the left this is sort of like a pencil drawing of that because that's on stone and you can't see it but when it's in pencil it looks like a bit like a sort of beavis and butthead cartoon but anyway there we go so the but this is jesus on the cross with a head of a donkey uh, and that's the boy called alex and so this is bullying graffiti in a so isn't it interesting the earliest picture of the crucifixion we have is done by someone who's bullying another kid for worshipping Jesus. But I think that's something beautiful in that. So it says, the, underneath it, it says, um, Alex worships his God. It says that in, in Latin, that's what the writing says, Alex worships his God. And underneath that, there's a, another bit of writing that says, yes, he does. And no one really knows if that is another kid adding his bullying or if it is Alex himself saying 
Yes, he does. That is who I worship. You can't see it. You think it's foolishness. Um, but in fact, it is the truth. Um, because let's see what is... Uh, you know, no, f- before we get to the, to the 1 Corinthians scriptures, which are all about foolishness, um, let me just remind us, there's two types of fool in the Bible. The Bible says tons about foolishness, but there's two types of fool. Firstly, there's the actual fool, right? So I'm not suggesting today that you all go home and build your houses on sand. That's foolish. Jesus says that's foolish. It, that, he's not suggesting you do that. Um, it says <laughs> Proverbs is full of foolishness that you shouldn't do and things you shouldn't be like. Like the, the, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. I'm not advocating being that kind of fool, um, Okay, so there's two types of fool. Firstly, there's the actual fool. Then there's a holy fool, and this is the type that we're referring to here today. So let's have a read of these scriptures in 1 Corinthians. Paul is talking to the Corinthians who are particularly up themselves and like getting, or they're very rich as a church, and they're getting drawn into fanciful, pompous ways of being Christians. So he's wanting to remind them, ground yourself in, who, in this Christ that we were following. So 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross, be emptied of, the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. For where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, um, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And then just flick it on, there's another Um, passage from later in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 9 to 10. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. Remember, this is actually happening at the time, Christians being killed by the Roman Empire. Um, We have been made a spectacle for the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ. But you are so wise in Christ, we are weak. But you are strong. You are honoured, but we are dishonoured. And there must be some kind of irony in how he's writing that to the Corinthians. You guys are great. You've got all this power. But we apostles have nothing. He's, he's like using that comparison. The word he uses uh, for foolishness is moria in the Greek. Moria means madness, and it's where we get our word moronic from. So he is saying the gospel is moronic to people who don't... No, uh, they don't get Jesus. He's being provocative in using those words on purpose. Okay, so I want to give you this idea that Jesus is a bit like a jester. And if I think there's an image that will hopefully um, show you these various different things. So G- Jesus and, can you flick it on, James? Um, Jesus and jesters. So jesters are like this, Jesus is like this. 
So let me talk you through these things and we'll see whether I can get through much of them. I'll try and be as quick as I can. I'm aware of your patience and time. Okay, so firstly, jesters are provocative. Think of the Pied Piper of Hamlin. So jesters happen in all cultures. Every single culture that has ever been, any tribe, any whatever nation, whatever in the world, they always have some form of fool type character in their makeup. The Pied Piper of Hamlin is a great example. That story, is, that's bonkers. He, we think it's, you know, oh, it's a nice story for kids. It isn't a nice story for kids. This guy comes into the town, highlights how everyone's selfish and removes all of the children and murders them. Anyway, we read it to our children before bedtime. Um, so <laughs> they're provocative. They make you think, oh yeah, well, I'm a bit like that. We can be a bit greedy in our culture. They often go naked. That's also provocative. Um, Michael Moore is a great example of a modern day uh, jester type character. Uh, he's the one who've done, who's done those films that have provoked people on guns in America and all sorts of other subjects. Um, and he arranged for, uh, he wanted to highlight something to the tobacco industry about how they were killing people and not admitting that they had anything to do with cancer. So he arranged, he worked out when the CEO of American Tobacco's birthday was, and he arranged for a choir to come and sing him happy birthday. And he turn, they turn up on the property and they say, oh, there's someone, someone's going to sing you happy birthday. The guy comes out to hear this choir sing him happy birthday, but then the reveal is they all get out their things. They've all had tracheotomies because they've had throat cancer and they sing happy birthday like... But through like the whole load of them singing through the tracheotomy things. So it's a completely like flips it on it. You're like, what on earth is going on? So, but it makes its own point, if you know what I mean. So jesters are provocative. They're also comedy. They do things in comedy, like classic clowns. Um, interestingly, if you go to the circus, if they've, they've tested this psychologically. If you don't have a clown, people don't generally enjoy the circus. If you have the clown, they don't necessarily like the clown. They might find him weird and, you know, strange and a bit scary. But they, but they like the circus. And the reason why is because... Clowns fail. They fall, they fail. They, and you, they, you kind of think, oh yeah, I'd be like that. I couldn't do that trapeze thing. I would also fall over. So they ground our, our experience, which is what comedy really does. Um, also, uh, stand-up comedians, think of them. They're like our modern-day jesters. Um, they say, uh, <laughs> George Burns, uh, uh, one of my favourite old-school uh, stand-ups, um, he says, speaking to a kind of New York audience who are very um, trying to be all amazing and like trying to, have, trying to look brilliant. Um, so he says, sincerity is everything. If you can fake that, you've got it made. And that's the kind of line where a comedian is like speaking into the truth of what's really going on in the uh, culture. Um, another beautiful line is from G.K. Chesterton, who says, angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. The devil fell because of his own gravity. And it's just like this poetic like language that helps us to see what's really going on. Take, when you take yourself seriously, you can be so burdened and so weighed down. When you take yourself lightly, it's easier to fly. Um, they're also ridiculed. Um, so again, think of these, these, how jesters historically are ridiculed. People would laugh at them. The court jester often was mocking the king and he would like be in the king's court and the king would be seen as very powerful to, and, and take himself lightly because he could laugh at himself. He would do an impression of the king um, and probably do a little bit of truth telling in that as well. But they would also be ridiculed. And 
yeah, interestingly, in the um, dark age, in the Middle Ages, sorry, they needed uh, jesters or village idiots or that kind of village fool type person as a kind of good luck symbol um, and, and as, an, as a scapegoat. So it's really interesting that jesters have always been used as a scapegoat for what went wrong. So if someone accidentally got pregnant, you could blame it on the village idiot uh, and it would basically make the society work because we always b blamed our guilt and our burden and our shame on the jester, which also rings true with Jesus. Um, Dostoevsky's The Idiot or Endo's The Wonderful Fool are really good literary examples of ridiculed jesters. Uh, they tell the truth in stories. Um, they hold the mirror up to us. So um, Emily Dickinson says, tell the truth, but tell it slant. And uh, think of the story of the emperor's clothes. Um, that is a really good jester tale where the boy's like, but he's like, I can see his willy. So, you know, that's basically how that story ends. Um, and um, <laughs> spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> They also turn things upside down. So uh, we think about a pack of cards, a, a joker. Uh, what even is that card? You can play cards without it. It can mean nothing at all. It can win you the game in some games. It can be everything or nothing. Um, or think of, have I got news for you? They turn it upside down, turn the world upside down. They help you think differently on that show. They leave you asking, who really is the fool here? Is it the comedian or is it this politician who's trying to sound very funny? Um, so they flip things uh, on their head. They turn things upside down. And Jesus is also very much like that. So Jesus is provocative. Jesus is so transgressive and subversive in word and deed. He breaks all the taboos that you would have thought that anyone could break, whether it's Jew and Gentile, male or female. Uh, but he breaks natural laws like walking on water or making food out of wine. Um, or making food appear out of nothing, or healing someone. He, he eats with the down and outs, but he also eats with the high and mighty. He, he, he uh, buys a ticket for the lowly to eat with the mighty, not buying a ticket actually, but he brings the lady in who, uh, who anoints his feet into the house of a Pharisee, and there's no way she gets in the house of a Pharisee unless it's Jesus who brings her in. And that's, that's like a boundary that just wouldn't have happened without, without him. He touches lepers. He's touched by the ritually unclean and he doesn't wash afterwards. He eats on the Sabbath. He touches a dead girl and he raises a dead friend. So he provokes the people that is around him. They don't know how to cope with that. So they want to kill him. But he also uses comedy. He speaks in riddles. Um, do, do you know, remember the one with, where he says, go down to the beach and pull out a fish and there'll be a coin in it? That's, he's using comedy to illustrate a point. That's not just uh, the, like a really good idea that we should all go and do, like we should all go and pull out fishes and try and get money from their mouths. He's not, that's not like a life lesson. He's just using comedy to illustrate a point. Um, he also uses hyperbole a load uh, of the time. So when he says, the, you know, well, take out the log from your own eye before you try and take out the speck from someone else's eye, he's not saying, you know, all those people walking around with trees in their eyes. It's like an exaggeration, a hyperbole to help us see the point, because like, that's what comedians do. Um, and he also says, don't herald your giving with trumpets. And again, it's hyperbole. He doesn't actually mean, put your brass instruments away when you do, do giving. He's <laughs> just like... Trying to, trying to illustrate the point even bigger. Um, the extra mile, the extra shirt, and um, 
turning the other cheek. These things are so provocative. But again, we, we read them and we just think, oh yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Just means just go a little bit further. Like if you're a Christian, just basically get your butt kicked a little bit more than normal. It doesn't, that's not what he's saying. He is, this is a really good illustration of how Jesus uses, uh, how he subverts the power of the day. So when he says, uh, if someone asks you to um, carry their stuff for a mile, take it for an extra mile. That's speaking into the fact that the Roman Empire, um, in the Roman Empire, a Roman soldier could say to a Jewish person, um, carry my stuff. But they could only do it for a mile. That was the rule. They couldn't do it for longer than a mile. So when Jesus says, if a, basically a Roman soldier says, take my stuff for a mile, what you should do is get that stuff, take it for a mile, and then insist on taking it further. What you then do is you flip the power balance and you take, and the, other, the Roman soldier's like, no, you're not allowed to take it for further than a mile. You have to give it back to me. And you're like, no, 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 I'll just keep carrying it. It's totally fine, I'll serve you. Now the power balance has completely flipped, but through service, which is what Jesus does. Um, he does the same with the extra shirt because to give your uh, first shirt would be like the outer tunic. You give that to someone and they're like, oh, that's fine, you've still got an inner tunic on. Give you, give you an extra shirt. Give another shirt means become naked in service to someone else. And now that guy's really embarrassed because he just made you be naked. You've again flipped the power balance. And the extra, the turning the other cheek thing, which I just absolutely love. Again, you probably, maybe you just know this, but anyway, if someone hit you, they would use one hand for something to do with the glue, right? That was what one hand would be used for. The other hand would be used for hitting someone. So they're not going to, or whatever, you'd use it for everything, right? But if someone hits you, they're not going to hit you with their left hand because that's what they go to the loo with. So they're not going to do it with that hand. They're going to hit you here, like a, let's imagine a punch. So uh, you might as well, Alex, can I punch you? Is that okay? Do you mind being punched, Alex? I won't actually punch you. But if I just punch Alex like this, right? Now we're standing like this. If you give me your other cheek, right, I can't use the left hand because that's like shaming on me. And I can't hit you there, so I have to use the back of my hand. And that is a shameful way in that culture to do it. So to turn the other cheek puts the power balance flipped and I'm now embarrassed about having to backhand him. So that's what Jesus is saying when he flips that example. Okay, I'll just go a little bit quicker on these ones. He's also ridiculed. Um, he's often abandoned by his followers. He's murdered in a mock coronation. And the teachers of the law often hated him. Um, he tells the truth in stories. Obviously, the parables are a great example of that. He tells so many stories and illustrates truth by doing that. Um, when he tells to the rich guy and, and, he, and he's, he's asking about the neighbor, um, and so the, the lawyer wanting to know about eternal life, sorry, he, t he tells the story about the um, Good Samaritan and he says, who behaved like a neighbor? So he tells that story and flips it. Up for, upside down. Um, interestingly, straight after this in Matthew 21, he goes into Jerusalem, goes into the temple and turns the tables upside down. Um, he does that in so many different ways. He surprises us. He praises the faith of a Roman centurion um, and, and, uh, in, in Matthew 8. Um, he is outwitted by, by a Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7, where she says about the crumbs under the table. Um, it, that's potentially the only example where Jesus looks like on a human level he's 
bit outwitted by another person. And for it to be a Syrophoenician woman is also completely like a, a head flip in the day. So he, I think Jesus is an example of a jester in a way. He's kind of a king of fools. Um, but we, as humans, think we know what power is about. We think we know what authority is about. But without Jesus, without Yahweh, we don't know anything about power. Humans think throughout history, they think they know power, but without Jesus, it's just dominance. So every time that any political um, thing happens, any, any empire grows in the world, it ends up just being about dominance. With Jesus at the center, it's different because he comes to disrupt, to turn things upside down. Um, in my sabbatical, I read this book uh, by Jimmy Carr on comedians and on fools in general. And it was really interesting because he rejected Christianity because of what he saw in Christians. He just thought, you guys just want to be in control. You want to be dominant the whole time. And I just don't think it makes sense. And I was re I reading this book on a, a train and I was just weeping when I read. I'm going to read you a little quote which sums it up for me. I'm like, Jimmy, you've got it. You've seen the true Jesus, but you think you've missed him. But the truth is most of the church has missed him. He says this, Jesus is the archetypal trickster or fool. Christ has his origins on the very margins of society. In Jesus' case, in a stable with animals, he tells parables with recognisable joke-like structure, complete with setup and punchline. He inverts expectations not only through the miracles he performs, also in the manner of his triumph, rising into Jerusalem to be crowned king upon an ass. And like the original lords of misrule, he is killed in a mockery of coronation. In, the crown, in a crown of thorns, under a sign proclaiming him to be the king of the Jews, mocked and ridiculed by the crowd. And I was just like, oh, Jimmy, that is him, though. You've seen it. Like, Alex worships his God, and he's a donkey, and Alex is going, yeah, that is who I worship, because you think it's foolish, but I see that that is actually true authority. Jesus was the king of fools. He is a king fool. I think he came to die for us to subvert death. He undermined the how the world sees power and impressiveness. He came in weakness and humility on a donkey, on a baby donkey. Um, he provoked, amused, was ridiculed. He told the truth in stories. He turned things upside down. The gospel is foolishness. The gospel is madness. We can't make logical sense of it. It is Moria. So I think we need to embrace the mystery of the madness and invite people into God's great comedy. Okay, so that's my theory on Jesus as a jester. I'd love to give you a few more minutes just to chat to the person next to you about what do you think about that? Do you think that's a helpful way to look at it? Do you think this, I don't know what this guy's on about. I wish we could just get back to the normal way of viewing Jesus, not as a jester. Um, maybe that's provoked something in you that you found helpful. So just chat to the person next to you. What do you think of this? Uh, and then we're, we're going to say some liturgy together after that. Okay, go for it. Okay, let's um, let's stand up, shall we? And um, I've written some um, some liturgy for us to say. I've made it up. There's nothing sacred about it, but this is some uh, some words that I think might help us in the season of Advent, which is celebrating the birth of Jesus, which is a ridiculous event, um, as we've described. It is it's um, 
an incredible thing that just we get used to. Uh, but actually, it's a ridiculous event of God coming to earth in physical form. And I think it's, Advent is a, uh, an invitation to lay down a bunch of stuff which holds us back. Uh, and to get back to what we really ask him afterwards, we're going to sing in the bleak midwinter, which is all about what we what we really have to offer. We just offer our heart. What an el- what else can we offer with all those other people offering various different things? It's a beautiful uh, carol that we'll sing afterwards. So let's let's say this together. Um, I'll uh, I'll read it on a mic, and you just join in. Every- let's re- let's read all of the words together, apart from the top bit. Okay, right. This Advent. I lay down my own gravity. I choose to live freely and lightly for Jesus. This Advent, I lay down my reputation. I choose to care more about how God sees me. This Advent, I lay down my ambition. I choose to put my life in God's hands. This Advent, I lay down my own wisdom. I choose the foolishness of God. Amen. Amen.